0: I think what we think of as the methods to collect those types of levels is evolving, and some of them are becoming more accessible than they have been in the past.
1: Are you running correlation analysis in your outcomes measures and program evaluation? Are you having conversations with your colleagues as listener Natalie Goldberg is? About how access to practice data is potentially redefining how we think about Moore's outcomes at levels five, six, and seven. In part one of this part two series of conversations with Katie Lucero, PhD, Vice President, Audience, Analytics, Outcomes, and Insights at Medscape, we began to open up the black box that houses the relationship between self efficacy, commitment to change, and intent to change. In part two, We focus on how access to health data is evolving, and what this means for measuring outcomes, the power of reinforcement and what that looks like, and tips for enhancing outcomes measures and strategies for measuring the impact of education programs that you can put into effect right away. Welcome to Right Medicine, where we explore best practices in creating continuing education content for health professionals. I'm Alex Hausen and I'm on a mission to share expert insights and field perspectives on topics like adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats for learning and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content that we create. Right Medicine is the premier podcast for CME CPD professionals like you wherever you are in the content creation process. Join us. Before we jump into my conversation today with Katie, Don't forget that when you subscribe to Right Medicine, you never have to miss an episode. And when you subscribe to the Right Medicine Insider, you'll get access to additional tips, strategies and resources to level up your approach to content creation. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and sign up for my newsletter via the link in the show notes, where you will also find information about Right Medicine's Black Friday sale. Can you talk about the relationship between self-efficacy and commitment to change and intent to change?
0: Yeah. So what I have found is that when you look at intent to change data, you know, 80% plus of learners intend to change something. If you give them a list of possible things they could change, 80% will select something on that list. And that's not really related to much of anything (laughs) Mm -hmm. because everybody's selecting it. And then it's the commitment to change. And it's not just if you had a scale of, you know, not committed, somewhat committed, committed, very committed. It's very committed that makes a difference. Just before we talked, I was looking at some data that showed that those who adopted a new treatment strategy for the very first time based in claims data, a hundred percent of them were very committed to making a practice change in treatment. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was very compelling. Now it's just one study, but, and it has to be replicated, Mm -hmm. but I thought that was a pretty important data point to talk about in this platform is to, you know, that commitment to change. And I think the literature would support that too. Mm -hmm. It's the level of commitment. And then I know there's been discussions at different meetings about the value in having somebody actually write out what they intend to change, I think it goes back to, you know, like PICME Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. things like that, where if you write it out, then it shows a higher level commitment and the more well elaborated that thing you're going to change is is written out and more concrete it is, the more likely it's actually going to come to fruition. And I I think that completely makes sense that if you have concrete Mm -hmm. plans for something, then you're more likely to do it. And that just shows your level of commitment.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's work out of Harvard University on that process of of writing, how it activates your reticular articulation mm-hmm. system, and starts to kind of build new, new, literally new neural pathways in terms of laying down that process from thinking about something to doing something. It's interesting. I um,
0: did a lot of work in identity formation and identity based motivation. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things about it's this idea of possible selves, this is back, you know, with working with teenagers, but it's all about who you want to be in the future. And a lot of times, you know, we educate because we're trying to, you know, create or foster a future behavior. So the more well elaborated the possible selves were that vision of who you wanted to be, the more likely you were to be Mm -hmm. making actual steps to get there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it mm-hmm. rings true for adults as well
1: yeah let's let's uh, let's hope so because uh, end of the year is coming up, and lots of us are going to be making <laughs> commitment to change types statements and and visions. but in that commitment to change, I want to kind of unpack the concept a little bit, uh, or you know maybe we can we can do that what What is it that we're talking about when we're talking about commitment to change?
0: Yeah, so when I'm thinking about commitment to change, I'm thinking about how strongly, and strongly is not the best word, maybe, but how strongly do you feel that you will make steps to enact that change? Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different frameworks you could think about it in terms of, but from a conceptual level, if you encounter a barrier, how committed are you? to progress past that barrier and and still do the mm-hmm. change or do the practice mm-hmm. so i think of those very committed if you say self-proclaim you're very committed then you're more likely to persist through barriers to get to that change
1: yeah that's really interesting i actually worked on a project with a triple c and asco a couple of years ago on clinical trial site self-assessments in relation to clinical trial participation and also, you know, addressing implicit bias and increasing patient participation in clinical trials. So when we think about clinical trial participation, of course, there are tons of systemic barriers to patient participation in terms of transport and economics and, you know, socioeconomics and cultural challenges and and so on. And the clinicians who participated in this Program all knew that. But I think one of the things that we found was that they were were highly committed to change. And in the focus groups that we ran, they were able to come up with all sorts of workarounds for, you know, to address these systemic barriers that were not impossible. You know, they were small changes that they could make to their system to address systemic barriers that one might assume if they'd been less committed, they would simply see as, yeah, we're never going to change that. That's just out with our control. So it's kind of interesting. I just, I was just reflecting on that as you were kind of speaking. You know, I've seen this in Likert scales around competencies outside the CME field, but labels that are really granular. So f- in a scale from one to five, or a 0 to 5 one a 0 might be i have no intention or of ever thinking about this whatever this is whereas 5 is yeah i've already implemented x y and z that shows you how committed i am to change do you ever play around with that level of granularity in in labels i haven't done that
0: i mean there is an opportunity to do that here uh at Medscape, but <laughs> i haven't played with the the labels i have looked at mm. Use of like binary choices, like a yes/no mm-hmm. versus a mm-hmm. Likert-type mm-hmm. scale. And by all means, please use a Likert-type scale. Don't use <laughs> yes, yes/no. If you want to pick up any sensitivity, because it, it was like it's like nine. Mm-hmm. I think I was talking to to a colleague, and I said, "Well, like ninety-eight percent said yes." My confidence improved, but when you actually measure a change in a Likert-type scale, pre to post, it's more like 40%. Mm-hmm. So the measured change is is definitely a better indicator. I mean, really, when you think about it, there should be variability in the things that we're measuring and the results. There should be variability in the responses mm-hmm. unless you have a very homogeneous mm-hmm. group. Yeah, And so that's why when I think about you know the knowledge competency type questions. When you see like a really high baseline, and then a high, and then even higher, obviously post. While that may be important for them to know, is it really? Was it a well constructed question? Was it too easy? You know, that all comes to mind for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there are lots of your colleagues in the in the outcomes uh, side of things who would who would be nodding <laughs> <laughs> at this point. We're, you know, just kind of kind of wrapping up. You talked about, you've talked about technology, you've talked about claims and you talked about moors. So just thinking about how these things relate. You know, we have a listener question from Natalie Goldberg, who's a scientific director at Projects and Knowledge. And she's kind of asking, you know, are the definition of what constitutes Moors levels five, six, and seven changing or evolving? you know, in response to different types of technologies, access to different types of data like the claims data that you were describing earlier?
0: So I don't know that the definitions so much are changing. I think what we think of as the methods to collect those types of levels is evolving, and some of them are becoming more accessible than they have been in the past, like to get
1: Mm.
0: kind of, uh, what is it, claims type data or EHR type data Used to be only achievable really through quality improvement studies and projects, um, but now we're finding that you know you can uh, work with different licensed claims providers and uh, get access to claims data. Now the resources it takes to mm. leverage that that resource are quite hefty. They can be either resources in house in terms of analytics capabilities or you know money uh, on the resource side to pay yeah a group like that a claims vendor to to do an analysis for you so it does get quite Mm -hmm. expensive but i think it's more accessible that's for sure than it used to be and then you because of claims data you can get more at the public health level outcomes and then you know the patient outcomes on level six some of that can be done with claims like you can get to different a1c levels with a with a diagnostic code mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then you know there's still a lot of you know lab and ehr type data that it's still it's still hard to access
1: without those partnerships with health yeah. systems yeah there's a lot to, there's a lot of that goes into building up those partnerships so tell us about the research you've been doing with Don Moore.
0: Yes. So thank you. Um, we had a paper accepted recently that should come out in JSEP as a short report soon. And that was looking at the power of reinforcement. So if you think about mm. the way we measured reinforcement was basically having a, a flat score pre to post on knowledge and competence questions, you know, there's no change, mm. but is that valuable? And so, what we found in the data is that those who had reinforced sole reinforcement, you know, no change, but did know something, were more likely to have higher post self efficacy scores than those who learned something new, who had an improved score. Oh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah, and in it, the distance between those post self efficacy scores or the difference between them became larger as your knowledge competency score increased. So the more that you had reinforced, the higher your self-efficacy was post. And it was Mm -hmm. higher than if you went from scoring like a 60% to 100%. So the self-efficacy for that person would have been lower than the self-efficacy for someone who was 100% pre and 100% post, which I think conceptually it makes sense because you're confirming something that you already know mm-hmm. and if if that thing we measured about what you know is in some way related to what you're doing in practice then it's giving you even more confidence that what I'm doing in practice is the right thing so you might have mm-hmm. a higher self efficacy mm-hmm. we were also talking a lot about uh, i brought to him this idea of first and final response to post test questions the outcome standardization project first defined first and final response to post test and at the time when I was involved with that group and looking through those glossary of terms I was newer to the field of CME and I was like well of course you'd use the first response (laughs) because you're you're basically told your response is wrong and try again and then Brian (laughs) McGowan presented some about outcomes a couple of years ago and and he kind of jokes like no one's using final right So then it started, I started thinking about it and I was like, well, if there are, if we are seeing use of final, what is that really telling us? You know, that final response to post test. So then I started looking at our final response to post test data and its correlation with other things and Moore's levels and self efficacy. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really not correlated with anything (laughs) because you know, 100% of the people are scoring 75% or higher, at least in our case, because you have to have a 75% score to get your credit. Mm -hmm. And so that also reflects back on just what do you do when you have really high baselines and high high post scores, and there's not a lot of variability in your learner's responses to those questions.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think there's so there could be value in, in showing that those scores are high and it's meaningful for practice if you actually correlate it with other things and not just mm-hmm. take the scores. But if you correlate with other things and you find it's not meaningful for practice, then that just tells us that we shouldn't, you know, test on that information. It's not really a valuable thing to mm-hmm. measure because it's not correlated with things that are important for eventual practice.
1: Mhm. Katie what's your sense of how much correlation people are doing in this field?
0: When I look at things that are available publicly, there I do see one other provider who who regularly is looking at confidence and knowledge competence questions and so like which questions mm-hmm. are correlated with changes in confidence. That's the only one I've seen. So I don't think it's happening very often. I know there's, there are some movements around discriminant val- validity and things of that nature. There was a session that I think Jason and Jim Morgante had at the Alliance.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: About discriminant validity, but it, it it's not always practical to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think at a minimum, we could look at, you can look at a Pearson correlation between you know, a a knowledge competency score and a self-efficacy score pretty easily. Mm. If you have the Mm -hmm. individual, you know, leveled learner data, just to do a gut check, you know, is are these Mm -hmm. things correlated? Mm -hmm. And if they are, then that's great because you're measuring things that actually should matter for other things when it comes to knowledge competency. But if they're not, then that's a point of learning in your program evaluation.
1: And yeah thank you for that I appreciate that and I I think I'm not sure if that uh, presentation by Jason Oliveri and Jim Morgante Morgante is publicly available but if it is I'll put a link to the in the show notes so just to kind of you know wrap up on that practical question of you know, you you've talked about resources and uh, and uh, you know capability and staffing, and that obviously makes a huge difference in terms of how providers can you know structure their outcomes, uh, you know, their approach to outcomes measurement. What are some kind of steps that educators or planners can take to, you know, use the resources that they do have access to to kind of better measure outcomes and the impact of their their education programs?
0: Yes, so. You know, no matter your level of resources, I think the the self-efficacy question is something that is easily implementable. And then if you're going to do that, I would say if you have programs that are of similar topics, then ask the same one and every one, and you don't have to come up with a new one every time. And then it also (laughs) lends itself to better aggregation if you're trying to look at outcomes across several programs. Mm. And then. Uh, you know, that commitment to change element, don't just ask about, do you intend to change your practice, but ask how Mm -hmm. committed you are to, to Mm -hmm. those uh, changes Mm -hmm. that you intend to make. The, you know, stepping back and really thinking about what I call a theory of change. So what do you believe needs to happen to Mm -hmm. get the overarching outcome in place? It's like, map it out. Mm-hmm. and think about ways to measure yeah. those things along the way to better inform your outcomes study. A- at a basic level, when I was at CDC I learned a lot about logic
1: modeling. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was just thinking it takes us back yes, to public health, yes. right? You know, and and those tortuous <laughs> maps, but they're really useful. They can be.
0: Yes, absolutely. They can be very useful. <laughs> I know when I started at Medscape and started talking about theory of change, everybody looked at me like I was crazy. But but I think now we're we're getting there with it resonating, yeah. but mm-hmm. if you just take that opportunity in the beginning to really think about that, it helps you un- identify key areas to measure. And there's mm-hmm. a plethora of research out there, you know, to to look up ways to measure things. Hundred percent. There's also the, you know, I talked about qualitative. So you open, mm-hmm. ask open-ended questions. It's better to have the data and mm-hmm. not have time to look for it through it than to not have it. <laughs> And, you know, I was thinking as we were talking about the elaboration of behavior change or intended changes, maybe there's something to analyzing how long someone's response is. Maybe that in and of itself could be an indicator of a commitment to change if your response is long.
1: Yeah, in, in response to an open-ended yeah. question. Yeah, no, that's interesting because well, oh, that's probably a whole nother <laughs> conversation. But but when you do look at you know, if a if a provider is collecting responses to open-ended questions and they, you know, they share the raw data in an Excel spreadsheet, let's just say, you know, very often you do see that mix of just kind of one-liners mixed in with, okay, there's a whole paragraph here. And maybe there's half a dozen paragraphs in a hundred responses. Yeah. That's interesting. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of that shows a degree of commitment. It does. It does. Right? Or you just
0: like to write.
1: <laughs> or you just like to write, yeah. Or it, or it's cathartic because, you know, the other thing that you see when you're doing qualitative kind of interviews is that, you know, sometimes health professionals, they have no other place to put their stuff. And and part of the motivation of participating in a qualitative interview is sometimes they have a yeah. lot to get off their chest. <laughs> so that's that's interesting. To, but that also is a measure of commitment to some extent what are you seeing in the future that excites you in terms of outcomes? where's the field moving? Get your crystal ball out uh, yeah what
0: excites me um so obviously the the plethora of data is always something that excites me you know from from the perspective of being able to have access to claims data it just opens up a a big door for Looking at meaningful practice change mm-hmm. at scale. I think because everything is, everything in terms of learning is, is moving a, more, even more so to digital, you know, COVID obviously sped, sped mm-hmm. that up. People are excited to get back to in person, but you do see fewer, fewer people in yeah. person than you did before COVID. Interesting. So digital content consumption, information seeking, like what is the, the learning pathway? And how does that have an impact on the outcomes? If you've mm-hmm. consumed a lot of content in an area before, are you more likely to have a positive outcome? You know, I think taking into consideration the full learning journey outside of the one mm-hmm. program you're studying
1: could be really mm-hmm. interesting. I was just going to say, are you doing that at Mesquite? <laughs> Can you say? <laughs> that could be really, I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought, you know, I've thought about that before in terms of what comes before, but we never really address that, but it's such an obvious thing to do. That is exciting.
0: Yeah. I I think that I've seen some information that would suggest that when certain clinicians take CME, it propels their journey for consuming other information in that area. And Mm -hmm. I think we should Mm -hmm. hone in more in understanding what that journey looks like and how it impacts clinical practice.
1: I love that. How can listeners stay in touch with you and your work?
0: I'm decently active on LinkedIn. I <laughs> I respond to questions that aren't promotional in nature. <laughs> and yeah, I love, I love to connect with people at conferences. I'll be at the Alliance meeting in New Orleans. It's exciting to get to a cool city for one of those meetings. Yes. But yeah, I'm out there on the interwebs. LinkedIn is generally where you can find me <laughs> from a professional perspective.
1: Excellent. We'll make sure that your, your details are in the show notes. Katie Lucero, outcomes analyst, change agent, and all-round uh, person who's interested in uh, outcomes and their power to change clinical behavior. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. Thanks for listening. Next week I'll be chatting with Nuria Nagrau about the potential benefits and ethical challenges of using generative AI to create continuing education content. Until then, stay curious, keep learning. See you next time.